Six years ago today, a group of people gathered at the Greene County High School Theater for a worship service and with a heart and a desire to begin a new work called Grace Fellowship. It is the beginning of what has been really a fantastic voyage of grace and faith. And, and there are just a few of the pictures that you see. Now, here's a good thing. I, this is not in my notes. Here's a good thing. Yesterday was, was my birthday, okay? And I had cake and I had ice cream. It was a good thing. But you see those pants that guy's wearing right there? Six years later, these are the exact same pants. Which shows two things. I haven't eaten too much cake and ice cream, and I'm real cheap. <laughs> but since we began, you know, that first, that first month, we, we've, we've about tripled the membership after that first month. We, um, we're blessed that God led about 100 people to come and join that first month, and, and we've grown about three times that size since then. We have, in the course of these past six years, We've rejoiced in 93 baptisms. That is, that's great. We have seen new faces become new friends. And we've seen some old friends who've moved away to different parts of the state or different parts of the country. And some old friends who've moved on and have found their home in heaven. There have been some struggles along the way, some challenges, and like every church, we've had a few bumps and bruises, but through it all, for the last six years, we found God to be completely faithful. And for the most part, God has found His people here to be faithful to His call. Our mission has not changed since we began. Our mission is very clear. Grace Fellowship exists to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. That hasn't changed. We adopted that as our mission, and we continue to move forward based on that. And we did so with what began as a, a whatever-it-takes attitude. We're going to fulfill this mission, whatever it takes. Now, as years go by and significant dates like a church's anniversary roll around, it causes a pastor and leaders and members sometimes to stop and think about what has happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future and begin to reassess and retool a little bit. And one of the things that I had to ask myself was, after six years, am I still committed to the same mission and the same attitude? After six years... Are you committed to the same mission and the same attitude? In other words, we need to ask ourselves individually and ask ourselves as a church, do we still have the whatever-it-takes attitude? Because i got to tell you, it's easy to slip out of that. It's easy to slide out of that into, into something else more, more comfortable, to something else that's a little easier, to something else that doesn't rock the boat quite as much than a whatever-it-takes attitude. But to spur us on to that kind of thinking, I'd like to share with you the attitude of a man that we find in the pages of Scripture. His name is the Apostle Paul, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we're going to hear something he wrote about that kind of an attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
We're going to look at verses 19 to 23. Give you a moment to find that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. The Apostle Paul was not only a writer of a significant portion of the New Testament, he was a missionary, he was an apostle, he was a church planter. He traveled all over the known world, and there he, he found people and he told them about Christ with the hopes of seeing that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when he had gathered a little group of believers or found a little group of believers in a community, he would begin a church there. And he would train the leaders so that they could train others and make disciples. For you see, the Apostle Paul had adopted the same mentality that Jesus spoke to us about in the Great Commission. The Great Commission. If, you've ne- if you don't know what that is, here it is. It's found in Matthew 28. These are words that Jesus gave to his disciples as he was preparing to ascend into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, which means nothing is left out. Jesus has ultimate authority. In that authority, then, he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Don't just win converts. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Apostle Paul had adopted that kind of attitude wherever he went intentionally making disciples, starting churches. It's the same kind of mission that we share as we seek to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul's mission never changed. He preached Christ. In fact, he preached Christ crucified. In other words, he didn't hold anything back. He didn't preach a sugar-coated kind of gospel, a sugar-coated kind of message. He preached a crucified Savior. But in not compromising that message, he considered his audience. He thought very carefully about those to whom he was speaking and how to best relate to them, how to best communicate the gospel. In other words, Paul's message never changed. But his methods did. That's one of the things that we as a church try to to latch on to. We want to keep our message consistent. We never want to change the, the message. But our methods have to adapt and change in order to reach people of all kinds of, 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 from all different walks of life, with all different attitudes, with all kinds of different backgrounds. We don't want to just reach like a laser beam into one little segment of society. We want to reach our community for Jesus Christ, rich and poor, black and white and Hispanic. We want to reach all of them 
for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is Paul's attitude. For the Jewish audience, he started his messages, he started his communication by referring back to Messianic prophecy. He pointed him back to the Old Testament. Wouldn't have done any good to do that with Gentiles, but with Jews, that's the way it worked. When he went and confronted the Athenian intellectuals, then he stood toe-to-toe and debated with them using reason. It wouldn't have done any good to refer back to the Jewish scriptures like that. He wanted to start where they were and communicate the gospel in a way that they could get it. Paul would speak before large audiences, but he'd also speak before small groups, one or two people. He spoke in formal settings, in palaces, in synagogues, but he also would speak down by the, down by the riverbank or under the shade of a tree or along the road. Paul spoke to all kinds of people in all kinds of places using all kinds of methods. The gospel message was always consistent. He always preached Christ crucified. But Paul met people where they were, and he communicated the gospel in ways that they could understand. In our passage this morning, Paul begins by emphasizing the freedom that he has in Christ. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, Paul was a free man. He was a Roman citizen. He was not a slave to anybody. Paul walked around a free man, free access to to all the advantages of, of free Roman citizens. But Paul's freedom extended just beyond his social standing. Paul came to understand that he was free in Christ Jesus. Formerly, Paul was a big religious leader. He was a big-time leader in the Jewish religious circles. And Paul really, well, he prided himself on obeying the law down to the letter. He He was a legalistic Pharisee, and he was proud of it. But he came to understand that there's freedom in Jesus Christ, that he was actually in bondage to the law. He was in bondage to the religious rituals of his time. And he came to understand that salvation is not earned, nor is it kept by obedience to the law or following religious rituals. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by grace, he wrote, that you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and it is not by works, so that you and I can't boast or brag that we have done anything to earn our salvation. Paul makes a big deal about being free in Christ. In fact, to the church in Galatia, he wrote this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Freedom in Christ was a powerful message that Paul preached over and over and over and over, that you do not earn or keep your salvation by doing good works, by following these laws. You get salvation by receiving it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the passage we read this morning, Paul makes it very, very clear that he was free to live as he chose Yet he chose to live as a slave to everyone. That word slave, it means slave, (laughs) a bond servant. Paul's not using some vague term here. He's saying, listen, I choose in my freedom in Christ to be a slave to 
everyone. When he did that, he was following in the footsteps of none other than Jesus himself. Jesus, the very Son of God, Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, said of himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there was anyone who walked on the face of the earth who should have been served, it was Jesus. Yet he came to serve and to give the ultimate sacrifice by giving his life for our sins. Now we know that Paul adopted that attitude because when he wrote to the Philippian church, this is what he said. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. The King of heaven humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Throughout the centuries, men and women who have lived with eternity in view and with the call of God in their hearts have embraced the very same attitude that we see in Jesus, that we see in the Apostle Paul, surrendering their personal rights and privileges for a higher cause. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, wrote, A Christian is, perfectly, is, is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. What, what an irony, what a paradox, and how beautiful that is. You and I are free in Christ Jesus. We can choose to live any way we want. But if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and Paul and so many others, then we will choose to live as a slave to all. Now, is this because we Christians are just gluttons for punishment? We just saw someone kicking us around because we just feel terrible about ourselves. No, not at all. What did Paul say was the rationale, the reasoning, the motive behind subjecting himself to others, becoming a slave to all? This is what he said, to win as many as possible. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Knowing that he himself wasn't doing salvation, but he was an instrument of salvation. Paul had a whatever-it-takes attitude. He would not compromise the gospel. He would not yield on the core truths, uh, the the ground-level faith of, of God's truth. There were areas where he was inflexible as tempered steel. But when it came to reaching people, Paul said, I will do what it takes to reach them. Their souls were too important. The kingdom of God was too important. The gospel of Jesus Christ was too important to do any less. You see, the apostle Paul was fully committed to the gospel. Now, we hear that term, gospel, but do we understand what it means? Do we know what the term gospel means? Literally, the word is translated good news. And in relationship to what we talk about in the church life, it is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But what is that good news? Well, we don't have to guess and we don't have to make it up because we're told very clearly what the good news is, what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 4, we read, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received and passed on to you is of first importance. Here we go. Here's the gospel defined. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is the good news about God's son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, buried, and risen. That is is the gospel that is what paul would never ever ever compromise on and that is what we as a church will never ever ever compromise on the gospel that jesus christ the son of god the perfect lamb of god came to earth lived as a man was crucified not for his sins but for ours died on a cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day was raised again, proving everything he said and did was true and opening up the way to life and eternity for you and for me. This is the gospel. Now, why is this message so vitally important? Again, we don't have to guess. The Apostle Paul gives us the answer. In Romans chapter 1, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, when embraced, transforms. It takes us from death to life, from darkness to light. We, be, we go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message that Paul would not compromise, that is the message that we will not compromise. And so we're left with this question, pounding in our hearts, ringing in our ears, do we, a church, after six years of existence and three years in this building, do we still have a whatever-it-takes attitude? And just as importantly, do you have a whatever-it-takes attitude? How can we recapture the enthusiasm and rekindle that passion? I want to suggest three things to you. First of all, recognize the great love of God. Recognize the great love of God. We hear a lot of love songs sung, perhaps you've read books filled with poetry about love, but there's been nothing written or done that signified love any greater than what God did for us in sending Jesus Christ. And He did it for a purpose. John 3.16, a verse many of you know, says that God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Each and every person on the face of the planet, past, present, and future, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the great love 
of God. We've got to recognize the love of God. And I know it's not easy. There are people that you look at and they're hard to love. But I've got to tell you, God loves them. God loves them so dearly. It's become almost a joke now when people pull out in front of me and drive about 20 miles an hour. And it happens. It's Greene County, folks. It happens. But it happens anywhere you live, right? People pull out in front of you. People drive like idiots. They're putting on makeup and talking on the cell phone and eating an Egg McMuffin at all at the same time. I don't know how they're driving. But they, you know, they get out on the highways. And, and you know, I got I to tell you, this is one of, the places, one of the times where I get a little bit upset, a little bit angry, and a little bit perturbed at, at what's going on ahead of me in the car because usually I'm trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as I possibly can. And it is hard to remind myself that God loves that moron. He does. God really loves them. And he wants them to get off the cell phone and put the McMuffin down. But he loves them. As we go through our lives, we rub shoulders and and bump elbows with people that aren't very lovable. As we do ministry in the life of Grace Fellowship, we're going to be reaching to people who aren't very lovable. But you know what God says? I love them. I love them. And if we as a church are going to rekindle the passion and recapture the vision of whatever it takes, then we're going to have to look at people through the eyes of God and say, I love you. I really love you. I love you so much I'm concerned about your soul. I'm concerned about your eternity. I'm concerned about your life. I'm concerned about the decisions that you're making. I love you. I love you. Recognize the great love of God. Secondly, acknowledge the desperate plight of the lost. Loving people is not enough. Even giving them a meal is not enough. Putting clothes on their back is not enough. They're good things. We ought to be doing those things. But it's not enough. In the book of Revelation, this powerful verse is written. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the plight of the lost. And it needs to rock your world. If we're ever going to rekindle the passion and recapture the vision, we must recognize the plight of the lost. It is not merely about helping someone through their day-to-day issues. We need to do that. We must do that. We are called to do that. But it is about something deeper. It is about having the heart of seeing that person come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. Our mission has not changed. Bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we need to recognize the great love of God. We need to acknowledge the plight of the lost. And thirdly, We need to embrace the mission that God has called us to. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There are people who are lost and dying apart from Jesus Christ, who are waiting and hoping for something. They don't know what. But they know their life is not what it ought to be. 
They live with a sense of hopelessness and desperation. And they look for all kinds of things to fill those needs. What they need is Jesus. What you have to offer is Jesus. And my prayer is that God will raise you up as a harvester to go out into the fields that are white for harvest, ready for harvest, even this day. When we went through our uh, 40 days of community, one of the verses that you were asked to memorize, and so many of you did so, I probably shouldn't even put it up here, but I will, was Ephesians 4, 5, which tells us, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. By outsiders, that means people who are outside the faith. Be wise in the way you respond to them, the way you act towards them. Make the most of every opportunity. Outside the walls of this very nice, comfortable building, one of the, I get two, when new people come into the life of the church and I begin to ask them about what they've experienced, usually they they mention two things. One is uh, how friendly and loving and caring you are. Keep that up. Keep it up. We want to create an environment that's loving and inviting. And we want to create that sense of community. But secondly, they comment on how comfortable the chairs are. And they are pretty cushy, aren't they? They, We didn't get the little narrow ones, so you're sitting there bumping up with elbows with everybody. So they're very comfortable. This building, it's nice. It's comfortable. It's useful. It's functional. But outside the walls, there is a world in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Now we can demand they be like us. If you will just be like us, dress like us, talk like us, and act like us, then we will engage you. Or we can go to where they are. We can engage them on their turf. We can show them the love of Jesus Christ. And we can hold high the gospel. Which will it be? Are we making the most of every opportunity? Are we taking advantage of every opportunity that God gives us? Or have we become satisfied because we have a building filled with nice people and comfortable chairs upon which to sit? What I'm asking is, after six years as a church, Do we still have a holy restlessness because God loves those people in the broken world and they have a desperate and hellish future that awaits them? Are we still disturbed by that, stirred by that, so that we're willing to say, like Paul did, I will do whatever it takes to carry the gospel to them. I will do whatever it takes to win one more. I'll become whatever I need to become. I will put myself under whatever I need to put myself under. I will bear up under whatever I need to bear up under in order to win some 
I'll do what it takes. Folks, you're the only person that can answer that question. As for me, after considering it, after praying about it and wrestling with it, as your pastor, I make this commitment to you. However long God leaves me here, I will do whatever it takes to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call people to faith, and to grow them to be disciple makers. That is my stand. That is where I am six years to the day since Grace Fellowship started. I am 48 years old. I know I look older. I am 48 years old. My dad died at 52 years old. Now, I'm not predicting anything, but I'm telling you this. I don't have any time to waste, and you don't either.